We start today, though, with a story we've been talking about uh, quite a bit this week, certainly for the past few weeks, and the idea of whether or not a sanctioned homeless camp should be refloated, should be thought about, should be looked at once again. Well, it's being talked about, so we thought, why not have that conversation right here? And joining me to talk about this a little bit more is DJ Larkin, an associate at Woodward & Company. DJ Larkin, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's been a while, but I know we've talked at length in the years past about the B.C. Supreme Court decision that dealt with people camping in parks, sleeping in parks. I know you were very involved uh, with that and what was happening in Abbotsford at the time. What is your take on what we're seeing at both Oppenheimer at Strathcona Park now and with these encampments? Well, I think what we're seeing, uh, and I'll say that part of my perspective on this is now um, sitting as a member of the steering committee on the National Right to Housing uh, Coalition or network, is that uh, we are seeing that these camps are uh, part of what it, you know, part of what is inevitably going to happen because we are experiencing an unprecedented crisis of homelessness. And COVID-19 has put this into stark relief because what we have realized is housing and being able to stay home and shelter in place has become sort of the number one way to protect one's health um, in the middle of the crisis. And so now we are seeing the importance of encampments when people lack other options. Do you think, though, that the idea of of a sanctioned camp is that I don't think anybody would suggest that that's the permanent solution. But what does that bring or what does that give to people? Yeah, so uh, I would agree that it is not the permanent solution. What I think it brings to people, if done properly, and I think I'll, I'll get into a bit of the detail on this, the idea of having sanctioned spaces if done through a rights-based approach, and I think that's something that needs to be really carefully considered here. When you talk about the right to adequate housing, an encampment is not adequate housing, and nor would anyone argue that it is. But the right to adequate housing starts from the basis of being uh, protected against forced evictions, being free from interference and having a sense of privacy in your home, and having the right to choose and determine where you live and have freedom of movement. So if you start from those basic principles that are recognized in international law and you say, okay, we will create sanctioned spaces so that people may choose to live in them because that is the safest place for them, that that may make good sense for some people. What we uh, do not think uh, would be advisable is to then say, well, because this is the sanctioned space, this becomes a highly policed space, a highly controlled space, and everyone is now required to go to only that space. It may be uh, an advisable, safe interim solution so that people can bridge into adequate housing, but it has to be something that is choice-based and rights-based so that people are not forced into these spaces um, in ways that are not safe for them and do not respect their rights. How do you make it a place, though, when we talk about it being a safe place, and we hear that a lot, people, people saying that I feel safer in this community, I would feel safer here than if I was somewhere on my own. But looking at Oppenheimer, I mean, there were cases of, uh, the one that, that sticks with me is there was the case of a woman who was abused for hours inside of a tent, and she was beaten, and uh, she was thankfully saved. I mean, there were there were cases of weapons being uh, being. Um, taken from from several of the tents uh, there was an element of that camp that that clearly wasn't uh, somebody who was homeless who was making the choice to stay there how do you how do you make them places that are in fact safe spaces 
So there's a few things that come up there. Uh, the first I would point to is, once again, we are looking at a situation where people living in encampments, and I'll say Oppenheimer in particular, as well as other camps, are saying, we would like to have other options. Where else can we go? And they're sort of being uh, corralled towards one space. And so we've never actually seen or had the opportunity to look at what happens if people can safely shelter in the places that are actually safe and in the groups and communities that are safe to them. If people had more options, people may have other places to go. But when you corral people towards Oppenheimer Park and people say, what other options do we have? Where can we go? And they're given no other option. What you start to see is people are living next door to people that they may not choose to live next door to, and that may not be best for them. But we haven't explored that option because it hasn't been legal to do so. And so people continue to be displaced often to these sort of larger encampments like Oppenheimer Park. So again, it comes back to respecting people's rights and choice. And the second thing I would just quickly point to there is we have all also seen um, a really upsetting uptick in statistics of of in-home violence throughout the pandemic because people have been uh, sheltering in place together and stress has been increasing and we've seen uh, increases in calls to helplines and things like that. Violence against women, queer people, trans people exists in our society and we can't say you don't have the right to a relatively, spa- a relatively safe space in a tent city because violence against women exists. We need to deal with violence against women because it exists everywhere. Are there examples in other countries or other cities that you can look at and say they've done it right or they've come up with at least a temporary solution to this? Uh, what I, I wouldn't point to any particular geographic location. What I would point to is the international standards. I would point to uh, the international standards for what constitutes the right to adequate housing, and that includes the freedom of choice, but it also includes um, standards for what constitutes adequate housing. And so even within the encampment context, we can look to things like security of tenure, so protecting people from these sort of last-minute eviction orders, the availability of water and sanitation, um, habitability and and again the freedom to the freedom of determination and the freedom of privacy. I would look to those standards. I would also look to some of the international standards on um, how to safely and respectfully uh, work with people who are living in informal settlements in a way that allows them to be moved into adequate housing if and when that becomes available. So those international standards are there. We just have to start looking at these encampments through a rights-based approach and seeing it as part of the broader struggle for the right to adequate housing. Uh, do you think we also tend to lump people into the same category? And, and there, there is quite a difference in that there are people dealing with mental illness. There are people dealing with physical uh, limitations. Uh, there are people that have moved to Vancouver from other parts of the country because they, they like the climate and they think it's a better place to live. Uh, there are people that maybe just uh, like the lifestyle, have chosen to do that. Are we are we lumping everyone together and, and thinking it's a one size fits all solution when it's really not? Yeah, so I see two aspects to that uh, to what you're raising there. First of all, there is no one size fits all solution, which again brings me back to the need to take a rights based approach, which is the right to determination and the right to have an individual have a voice into what is accessible to them. So if we're moving people out of an encampment into housing that is not accessible to them, if it's a shelter that does not recognize their gender identity or an SRO where women are unsafe, that is contrary to the right to adequate housing because it's moving them into a less safe space. 
So you actually have to look at it and say, who are the individuals here and what are their individual needs as expressed by them? And the other aspect to that, I would say, is people do get kind of lumped together because of a decades-long narrative that is perpetuated by by government and socially more broadly of a kind of an us and them, of homelessness as being a moral failing, and therefore we can exclude people. We know that that is structurally and individually just not true, but we need to break down that narrative in order for people to understand the, the importance of a rights-based approach. All right. So we'll leave it there for today. DJ Larkin, great to talk to you again. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, there has been a lot of talk about the extension of the many benefit programs that have been put in place because of COVID-19. And we now know that the federal government is planning to provide $19 billion to the provinces and the territories for a safe restart of the Canadian economy. Well, let's bring in Jonathan Wilkinson. He's an MP for North Vancouver, also the Minister of Environment and Climate Change. Minister Wilkinson, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. $19 billion sounds like a lot of money, is a lot of money. This going to the provinces and territories to fund what's being called a safe restart. What do you see this money being used for? Well, I think, you know, we've, we've obviously been pretty focused as a society on flattening the curve and now starting the relaxation. But we all know that um, that having a safe restart is essential. None of us want to fall back into what we have seen happen in some other jurisdictions. And so what this is about is, a, is about putting money into those things that really need to be done to enable us to be comfortable that we will have a, a safe restart. So a big chunk of the money is going into increased testing and contact tracing. So that when we actually do have spikes of the virus, we can manage those effectively. Uh, It's more personal protective equipment for frontline workers. It's money for mental health, which is obviously a challenge. It's ensuring that childcare is available so people can go back to work and and about uh, providing money for, for sick leave for people so that they don't go to work when they're ill. And finally, it's it's about helping municipalities who have really been hit hard, um, and, in, and in particular, public transit. So it's support for public transit. Uh, it's getting uh, praise from the premiers, uh, including uh, BC Premier John Horgan, uh, saying that this province is going to be getting about $2 billion of this particular announcement. Uh, you mentioned sick pay, and that's something that the premier here has been talking about uh, as well. How quickly do you think there is going to be, or is that going to be up to the provinces as far as providing sick pay for people who don't have have it. So the money has been set aside, and in, in, in particular with respect to sick pay, it's the federal government that will be paying, um, but it requires provincial action in terms of legislation, so to put in place the measures that enable that. So each province will need to, to act. Um, my my uh, um, guess is that BC will be one of the first to act. They've certainly, Premier Horgan uh, has been an advocate for ensuring that people are provided with the ability to not have to go to work if they're ill. Um, so I would be uh, I would be quite comfortable saying that I, I expect that Premier Horgan will move quickly. And and I would say that you know the, the government of British Columbia was was a very constructive participant in the conversations between the provinces and territories and the federal government. Uh, I think you know we're very pleased that we were able to get all provinces and territories to agree on the areas of focus that we think are so important to enable the safe restart and and to ensure that Canadians are are safe. 
Uh, you mentioned transit as well and funding for transit. Uh, that was a topic of discussion yesterday when our Premier was talking about the cost sharing being 50-50 between the province and Ottawa. Is that money coming out of this fund or this announcement as far as going to new transit projects or does that go to projects that had already been approved or do you know how that plays out? So the focus of a lot of the, the short-term money for public transit is actually going to be in the context of supporting ongoing activities of the transit agencies. They've obviously incurred a lot of additional costs uh, over the course of, of the last while, and, and they obviously have also seen a significant drop in the revenues that they get from uh, from fares. So this is actually helping transit authorities to become more stable from a financial perspective. We need public transit systems to continue to operate. We need them to be there from a livability perspective for uh, for those of us who live in, in large urban centers. Um, we also need them to help us to fight climate change and get people out of their cars and give them options which, which enable them to do that. So this is a really important thing. You're right, it's cost-shared. Uh, this, this part of the funding is cost-shared, so provinces will have to decide that public transit is a priority and they will match the, the federal money. But uh, I, again, in British Columbia, my understanding is that the provincial government has decided this is a priority. Uh, where else do you, do you see it going when we're talking about that safe restart? Uh, like you said, uh, we've touched on a couple of the things, sick leave on transit. What else do you think are the priorities uh, to, uh, as you said, to, to make sure that we come out of this and that we don't find ourselves back if there is a second wave or back uh, having to look at things like shutting down? Well, I think one element which is included in, in this package that we have been very uh, firmly committed to is increasing the amount of testing that goes on in this country, or at least the capacity to do testing, and contact tracing, so that when you actually do find that there is a, a, an outbreak of the virus, that you can actually very quickly trace those contacts and ensure that people who have been in contact with somebody that has the virus uh, is is isolating. Um, this is the, the way in the absence of a, of a vaccine or, or some other treatment um, that we can actually manage to uh, to keep the virus at low levels, and, and in the absence of making those kinds of investments, you know, we put we put ourselves at risk. So, um, you know, the, the testing capacity in this in this country that we are aiming to have in place is uh, the ability to do 200,000 tests a day um, and to be able to effectively contact trace, and that is incredibly important in terms of ensuring that we can continue well, you know, continue to move back to this new normal um, and restart the economic engine that we, we know we need to, um, but to do it in a manner that, uh, that will be safe in a period where we do not have a vaccine. Uh, this funding comes as civic governments uh, here in BC and other provinces as well have been asking for aid, have been saying they need federal help or they're not going to be able to dig themselves out of this financial situation. Uh, do you think that there will be more money coming? Because I know a lot of people are also referring to the $19 billion as as a first step, maybe not the last step. Well, I think this is an enormous package for a safe restart. I mean, obviously, as we move forward, we will have to look at, at uh, you know, the, the sectors and areas that have been most significantly impacted. We're coming back to something that approximates um, the economic activity that happened pre-COVID uh, will take longer, and we'll have to assess whether there are additional things that need to be done. But in this package, there is $2 billion to support municipalities for the operating costs, um, which is what um, Mayor Stewart and my mayor, one of my mayor here in, in the city of North Vancouver, Mayor Buchanan and, and uh, Mayor Tory in Toronto and others uh, have been advocating for. So this is a very substantive response. There's $2 billion for municipalities and their operating costs. There's another billion eight for public transit.
Uh, this comes on the, the same day. We, we've now heard that the wage subsidy program is going to be extended to December 19th. Uh, we're also hearing, though, from Canada's deputy public, uh, public health officer, uh, Dr. New. Uh, he's concerned about the number of daily cases of COVID-19, saying that they're on the rise. Uh, are you concerned that, that that's happening, that maybe people aren't taking it seriously enough as we try to do this safe restart? Well, I think that that we are going to have to be very clear. I mean, Canadians have been, I think, very thoughtful in how they have managed their own behavior over the course of the period where, um, you know, the the virus was was not fully under control. Um, But I do think that we have to be very careful that we do not somehow think that we're going back to normal. People will need to continue to be vigilant. We will need to continue to, to, to socially or physically distance. Um, you know, we will need to take precautions. We do not want to have uh, ourselves falling back into a, a, a bad situation. Um, and, and we only need to look at, you know, cases like California, which actually had a reasonable plan in terms of how they were managing the virus. And, and when they, they, you know, citizens stopped perhaps being as cognizant as they needed to of, of, uh, of the kinds of precautions that we all need to take, masks and washing hands and physically distancing, um, you saw a significant spike. We don't want to have that here. And so part of this plan is putting in place the measures. But certainly, we collectively are going to have to, as citizens, continue to behave in a manner that's going to ensure that we can continue forward, we can be outside, we can do the things that we love to do, um, but we, uh, we have to do them safely. All right, Minister, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Not at all. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us this afternoon. As you've been hearing in the news, the House of Commons Ethics Committee has now been put off till next week, uh, making that decision on whether or not to demand records of the Trudeau family's speaking engagements as part of the probe of how We Charity was given responsibility for the federal volunteer program. Earlier today, we heard from Finance Minister Bill Morneau, whose daughter works for an arm of the organization. Uh, He said similar things to the apology that Justin Trudeau made as well this morning. I did not recuse myself from the deliberations on the choice of administrator. And in hindsight, I should have. I made a mistake. I regret and I apologize sincerely for having made that mistake. As you know, the We Charity gave up running the $900 million volunteer program after the controversy came about about the hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees the organization paid to members of Justin Trudeau's family for appearances at several We events. Well, the story doesn't end there. There are certainly more layers to this. And to talk about another part of this story, we are joined by Brian Lilly, who's a political columnist with the Toronto Sun. Brian, thanks so much for joining us today today. Uh, thanks for having me on, Jill. Long time no speak. I know it has. I think it's been years. But yeah. I saw the piece that you wrote because you've been looking at the real estate holdings, which people I think don't often uh, associate with charities. But you've been looking at the land that is owned by not only the We Charity, but We Charity, Me to We, uh, the Me Me to We Foundation, and Imagine One Day International Organization. Uh, before we get into what you found. Are those all separate organizations? Are they related? How do they go together? Well, they're separate organizations in the way that you and your brothers and sisters are separate organizations. You're all related. You're all part of the same family. You're individual people. Except that may not be the best analogy because in many cases, such as between we, the charity, and Imagine One Day International, 
that's an organization whose address is actually in Vancouver, and which started on the prairies, but their board is the same board as We Charity. They're one of the organizations that bought a you know, property in the same block as all the other organizations for just shy of $3 million. This organization had never owned property and land before. Their purpose is to help people in Ethiopia with schools and wells and you know, building a better life in remote rural parts. Uh, suddenly they're buying a $3 million piece of property and you know, just outside of the core of downtown Toronto? Yeah, it seems it seems strange. Now, people will automatically think, well, wait a minute. Are they using donations that are meant to do exactly those things, purchase schools, do things for kids, which is what the We Charity says it does? Are they using donations or, or how do they explain what they're where the money's coming from to make these land purchases? Well, we will tell you that oh, they didn't use any of the money designated for you know, building a school in Kenya or giving clean water in Ecuador towards these land purchases. But what I can tell you after looking at this organization very closely is this has been going on for more than a decade. Uh, they used to own a, a you know, bunch of real estate, houses, office buildings, and the like, either between them and their family or as individuals or as the charity in the Cabbage Town district of Toronto. And all they did was move several blocks south to the Corktown neighborhood of Toronto. So it may mean may not mean a lot to uh, people in Vancouver when I say these names, but you know, just think of of moving from Gastown to Kitsilano. Well, you're just moving a little ways away, but you're still owning a ton of real estate. Enough in this case that you've got four different organizations, all involved in what I have dubbed Kielberger Inc because Mark Craig and Mark Kielberger are central to all of this, uh, four different organizations buying up 15 different properties in one block. When I showed it to people involved in the real estate market, they said, that looks like a condo play. And did you get any answer from We Charity as to why they are, and according uh, to your findings, why they are, as of 2018, holding on to $43.7 million in real estate? So $43.7 million worth of real estate, I want to point out, is what they reported to the Canada Revenue Agency for the end of fiscal 2018. That does not include the other organizations, which report separately. So uh, One Day International... Uh, Inc., which is a charity, or sorry, I shouldn't have included Inc. One Day International Inter. Imagine One Day International Organization owns a $3 million piece of property in that area. The Mita We Foundation owns several million dollars uh, worth of real estate, I think between three and four million. And then Me to We Asset Holdings Inc., which is a shell company owned by Me to We, the private company owned and run by the Kielbergers that will sell you the bracelet from the lady in Kenya or the ethically sourced T-shirt or coffee or uh, chocolate or will book you a volunteerism trip to go and build a you know school in India. They own several more pieces worth, I think, about $8 million. So we're talking, once you add it all up and then you add on appreciation, you're talking about more than $60 million worth of real estate owned by this group in inside one block. They own an entire city block on the south side, uh, real estate down one of the side streets, and two buildings across the street. 
if you're constantly telling people $25 will provide someone with clean water for life, those are millions and millions of people going without clean water so you can have real estate. Um, they claim that it saves them money, about a million dollars a year, $1.2 million, compared to leasing. But investors and major business people that I've heard from said, that's just a bad money play. If if you want to save a million dollars outlaying tens of millions of dollars and tying it up in real estate, some of which were bought with cash, that is just a bad uh, use of money. And so, and so, when they say that the buildings that they bought are from targeted that money that that money came from targeted donors and supporters, they're suggesting that there were donors and supporters who said, "Here's this money, millions of dollars. It's not for the children. It's for you to invest." Yeah, and so I would argue that when it comes to their global we headquarters, that's entirely accurate. They own this building at the corner of Queen and Parliament, Toronto, that uh, used to be, it has historic designation. It's a three-story building, you know, turn-of-the-century, beautiful architectural style, and they're not allowed to do anything with that. And they asked major donors, like people were giving $5 million a pop to help them build, buy this place and refurbish it. They turned it into a state-of-the-art facility where they can have uh, lectures and where they can have working spaces and where they can bring people together uh, in so many ways to do what they do. And I don't dismiss the fact that we has done good work over the years. But that's for that building. I don't remember a capital campaign to buy the $1 million and $2 million and $3 million buildings down the rest of the street. And... If all of these organizations, we likes to tell you that they are separate from MeToWe and from the MeToWe Foundation and from uh, Imagine One Day International. Well, if you're all separate, how did you all end up buying real estate in the same block? There's one person that oversees the finances of all of it, as far as I can tell. Now, I have asked we several times about uh, the uh, the fact that you know, I only see one person as the chief financial officer for all these organizations, and they have not responded to me. Uh, but you've got one person overseeing the finances. You've, you see the same people over and over again involved in this. This is coordinated. This is not separate individual organizations, separate entities. This is coordinated. And it's not unusual, I guess, to see charities that have assets. A lot of churches own property, have have land as part of their portfolio. Uh, but in this case, what do you think the issue is, or what do you take issue with the fact that the, these companies, uh, these these very closely aligned uh, companies, are doing this? Well, look. In the case of churches, they normally own land where they where the congregation meets, whether it's for church services or for uh, banquets or for providing uh, services to the poor. These are the things that churches have historically been involved in. When it comes to we, they have literally been commercial landlords for well over a decade, um, renting out space to everything from hair salons to photography studios, um, and buying and selling real estate at an incredible level. Uh, I mean, I, I'm I'm just delving deeper into it now, but you will be shocked once I get 
go through everything. I've shown some of it, but not all of it. Um, and, and you have to start saying, okay, where is the charity and, and, and where is the uh, the real estate? Like, how, how do you combine the two? Um there are literally tens of millions of dollars that could have been spent on charity and instead are going into real estate. Uh, imagine One Day International was started with $10 million. Once they got involved with WE, all of a sudden $3 million was spent on real estate. Well, a new study shows that in countries like this one, like Canada, where we have accessible health care and more people that are able to live with heart conditions and live after stroke, the COVID-19 death rate is actually higher if you compare it to, with countries that don't have as many health care services. So it sounds like a bit of an odd one. So we are going to bring on somebody who can explain the study results. Cindy Yip joins me now, Director of Data Knowledge Management and the Heart Program, Heart and Stroke. Heart and Stroke and Principal Investigator of this study. Cindy, thanks so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. So what is this actually looking at as far as people that are living with these chronic conditions and the bigger dangers when it comes to COVID-19? Yes, the data seems very counterintuitive. I think it's kind of a first reaction to this. It was actually surprising to us as the primary investigator. Um, and what it really says about is that because we have quality health care and because the healthcare heroes are so good at doing a job, they actually uh, linked us to being able to live longer. Uh, but that's also mean many of us are living with chronic disease or multiple diseases and resulting uh, a poorer outcome um, to COVID-19 deaths. And, and so is it a poor outcome because you have the underlying health condition, the chronic illness, that if you, you get the disease, you're more susceptible to it? Or I, I know the study is also looking at perhaps people that didn't go to the ER or didn't go to seek medical attention for something unrelated if they needed it. Yes, it's very complicated. And, you know, there are multiple factors. And yes, one of them is because uh, people with underlying heart condition and stroke they are more vulnerable to COVID-19 and more vulnerable to poor outcome. Therefore, in our study, we saw that there is a link between 1% increase in the size of a population like Canada um, that have a very high uh, population of people with uh, heart conditions and stroke also have uh, about a 19% increase in the, uh, the COVID-19 death rate. So that's one factor. The other factor, as they say, very correctly and eloquently mentioned it, is that um, because of the fear of contracting COVID-19, many people are delaying seeking medical help or um, not continuing with the medications or not having a very healthy living uh, conditions right now. So it just speaks to, it underscores, you know, the importance of maintaining a active lifestyle um, you know, eat healthy, sleep well, and stay active and stop smoking and vaping, um, as well as don't hesitate to call 911 if you have sign of stroke or heart attack, or if you saw someone experiencing cardiac arrest, you know, don't hesitate to seek help. And also for the acute heart condition patients, don't hesitate to seek medical help as well. Do not delay presenting your symptoms or your signs of any heart problem. 
And, and I know some of the doctors at the emergency rooms in BC made a point to earlier on in the pandemic of putting that out there for anybody that if you need medical care, don't put it off because you're, you're fearful about the virus. What about people though? We saw so many uh, elective surgeries and it's a, a wide range of surgeries and medical procedures that fall under that. We saw so many postponed because of the pandemic. Did that have a negative impact as well on people living with chronic disease? Absolutely, it does. In our report, we also estimated using Ontario data um, that about for every single month of um, the COVID-19 public measure that is being in place, we estimate about 1,200 procedures being postponed. So this has not only a physical and, and health impact on these people, it will also put a lot of stress. So what we have heard in the online um, community of survivor and care partner community, which are two online peer support uh, platforms that is um, um, provided by Heartland Stroke Foundation, um, is that you know we hear people people you know do feel and and you know a sense of anxiety and stress and and, and you know the uncertainty of what's going to happen to the delay procedure. So definitely that also doesn't help with our Heartland Brain Health. Have we learned anything or can we look at anything positive that's come of this as far as healthcare and making sure that even when there is this increased risk, people get the attention and the healthcare that they need? Um, yes, we have learned. I mean, I think as the headlines in many of the news about this study is that um, Canada is very fortunate to have good quality healthcare. And we are very fortunate to have a very devoted um, group of, um, you know, frontline healthcare heroes. So that is the good news. Um, and the good news is if you do not delay presenting your signs and your symptoms, if you do not delay reaching out and picking up the phone and calling uh, your clinic, um, you know, the, the, the healthcare is there for you. So it's all about, um, you know, don't delay getting medical help. Do not change your medication routine unless you hear so from your doctor and uh, continue to, to read about tips and ways to stay hot and brain healthy during COVID-19 pandemic. And I guess it's that's it's great advice that people need to follow. But I understand, too, why somebody would be petrified that, you know, you have this chronic illness, you're more susceptible to a virus, be petrified to put yourself in a scenario where you think you'd be at a higher risk of contracting it. Yeah, so I think the study, what really is telling us is, you know, um, we, we actually don't have any scientific data to to point to the people with underlying condition have a higher risk of contracting it. What we actually find in the study is that if you do have the underlying condition, your outcome, if you do contract the virus, um, may not be as good as those without any underlying condition. So I think, you know, we need to really look at the data carefully um, and uh, do understand that the chances of getting COVID is equal regardless of whether you have underlying condition or not. And hence the fear of seeking medical help uh, or going to the hospital or the emergency room, um, it actually, um, you know, Uh, it's not relevant because there are good public health measures in place and the virus is not going to favor one population versus another. All right. Well, it's uh, very interesting research uh, that's coming out of this study. Uh, Dr. Yip, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about it. You're very welcome and have a good Friday.